0: And it's time for the Seventh Avenue Project. Robert Polly here. Well, the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music begins its 48th season starting today. Some of the world's leading composers and musicians will gather for two weeks of concerts, workshops, and public events celebrating new classical music. And today I'm going to talk to two of this year's visiting artists composer pianist Kevin Putz and the percussionist Colin Curry. Both will be performing concertos with the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra, and we'll talk about those performances in the hour ahead. First, a conversation with Kevin Putz, considered one of today's most prominent younger composers. He's a favorite of the Cabrillo Festival and its music director, Marin Alsop. In fact, this will be his seventh appearance at the festival. But this year he's doing something a little different. He's taking the concert stage to perform his own piano concerto, entitled Night, Kevin was a serious student of the piano and might have become a concert pianist, but was drawn to composing instead. So, was there was there something of a tug of war uh, when you were at that crucial period, deciding between full time concert pianist, uh, maybe with images? Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Of you know, adoring crowds, standing ovations. Uh, well,
1: I was so naive that I, th- I thought that <laughs> you could do, you could have that with composition too. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that it really is, you know, it's sort of a performer's world these days. But, you know, I, it wasn't really about that, that decision for me. Um, I think that composing, the, the lure of, of composing um, was just greater. And the sort of dealing with the unknown, and uh, that's a very exciting thing. And, and just to hear really skilled players um, play the music that you've imagined... Is a, is an exciting moment, and then the and furthermore, it's <laughs> exciting when the audience you feel them really getting it, you know, really connecting, and that there's real communication. It's just an amazing kind of uh, moment when when what you're communicating comes from yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, all of it comes from you. You know, I mean, I had teachers. They say, "Well, why don't you, you know, try to play in piano competitions and that kind of thing?" And I I just didn't, I didn't think it was the way I wanted to spend my time as as a musician. Um, practicing for the hours and hours that would be necessary to to really um you know to win those competitions and hmm. um, so you know it just became something that i i tried to do very well i i take i have always taken very seriously um, i guess where i really spend my time is with composing
2: hmm.
0: two two very different lives a composer and a uh, concert performer yeah. uh, but you're happy with the
1: decision Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't change it for. I. I love. I love what I do. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Mm. But you. You've kept your hands I- in piano playing as well. I mean, you've kept your chops strong. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> I thought I had. <laughs> I. I was talking to to Marin Alsop about about doing this piece, uh, you know, a, a year ago, and, you know, so I started practicing. I realized I was really pretty stiff, and so it's been quite a, you know. A journey uh getting getting my fingers back when i think I feel almost that i've i'm playing better than I did when I was at my you know i guess my most limber
2: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> so you know i did, i guess because i've been my practice has been very disciplined you know um I've been very methodical about it because I'm busy with composing i'm busy with with my uh my family you know I have a new i have a five month old son, so you know I don't have hours and hours so i i, I was trying to I, I tried to be very methodical about practicing so i It's been better than I think um, it used to be. But maybe that's just, uh, in retrospect, I don't don't really know. Maybe I'm not as good as I used to be.
0: (laughs) I think uh, it's important to believe that you are, so I support the idea. It's going to be important (laughs) next week. (laughs) (laughs) And and the piece we're talking about is Night, this concerto that you're going to be performing with the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra on um, August 14th, Saturday night. Um, Tell us about the history of this piece.
1: Well, it was commissioned by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra um, and the pianist and conductor, Jeffrey Kahane. And most of the work he does with that orchestra, um, he he does from the keyboard. So he conducts from the keyboard. You know, he plays Mozart, piano concertos, that kind of thing. So that's what this piece was. I wrote him a, a concerto for piano and chamber orchestra, which he could conduct from the keyboard. And... Um, it was premiered uh, a couple of years ago, and he did, of course, it was, it was amazing. I mean, he's a wonderful musician, um, and the orchestra is also, is also fantastic. Um,
0: um, um, but I'm trying to picture this. A, a guy uh, playing piano, I'm assuming with both hands, and conducting, what did you do, tape the uh, baton to his forehead and have him yeah, waggle right, around? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: He, he conducted the violins with his left foot and the shells with his right foot. Yeah. Um, no, he, um, the sections where he's playing... And, and he's, you know, he can conduct. Um, they're much more straightforward rhythmically for the most part. So he doesn't. So they don't need him as much there. Though, you know, to be honest, there, it would be nice to have him there too, to have some conducting going on there too. So, you know, for this version of this will be the first time that the piece has been played with a conductor. And of course, I have the best uh, Marin Alsop, um, and I, I think it'll it'll work maybe better um, because the. The lid of the piano, I think, will help the balance better. You know, when he's pl- when Jeffrey played the piece and the piano, the lid is off of the piano, and he's sort of facing into the orchestra, and so I think some of sometimes you couldn't hear the piano as well as I, I had hoped, and um, I'm hoping that that. Um, this version, you know, the balance will, will work a little better.
0: But but you're free of conducting duties, so you can concentrate I'm very on playing. i free. Play.
1: Nobody would want me to con- <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think I'm in good hands with Marin. So.
0: <laughs> You've been to the festival numerous times. Right. Uh, how many times now, as as a composer in residence? No, you know,
1: you know um, it's maybe the the seventh time. Seventh time. I'm not sure. Since yeah, I mean, it's been really great. You know, the first time in 2000 was it two or three? I think it was too. um Marin played my uh second symphony, and it just i i think it it went really well you know it just it was a really nice response. She played it in the mission
0: san juan and, batista yeah
1: San juan batista right right and it was a it was a good piece for that that space um, that year she asked me to come back um, and to also teach the the students in the young composer workshop at the beginning. Um, and then, of course she had also she also played a, a piece of mine, so um, yeah we've had a really great relationship, and I feel I, I have such a warm relationship with the the whole orchestra and the administration and everybody at Cabrillo. It just feels like home in the summer for me and um, you know to be able to play with them I'm, I'm just so excited about it i can 't wait to start rehearsing
0: This will be the uh, the first time though, that you 've performed um, in the Cabrillo Festival. Always been the composer, I mean, always been a composer here, but uh never never a performer
1: yeah, I played a little bit in in a in a smaller event that we had um a couple of years ago. I played one of my solo piano pieces um I think it was on a we did a little concert for composers who perform, and so I played a little something, but yeah, this is certainly the first time you know on one of the uh, uh the so called bigger bigger concerts so
0: Okay, I stand corrected. But this is the first time that most people will be aware of you as a right, as a right. pianist. Um, you you composed it uh, with um, Jeffrey Kahane in, in mind, a very um, technically uh, gifted uh, piano player. And I've heard it's quite a difficult piece. Have you discovered that anew as you try to master it yourself?
1: Yes, I, I have. <laughs> it's definitely a difficult. Piece. Um, there there are a lot of notes. I mean, it's, there are just a lot of there's a lot of virtuosic sort of activity that goes on. A lot of the time, but that's true in a lot of my music. You know, I like a sort of um, a feeling of the music being very florid and a lot of it, and a lot of motion going on. So it's not something that I do just for sheer, you know, uh, for for the sake of, of being difficult or, you know, showing off. It's really that I like the sound of of maybe slow moving harmonies and things going on in the orchestra and the piano playing very active. Um, uh, florid ornamentation over that. And so that's what happens a lot in this piece. Um, yeah, the, certainly the first and, and third movements are very, um, very virtuosic and really a workout. Um, but, you know, I, of course I wrote it so that it would fit in the hand, so that, you know, I mean, I try to follow the um, the model of, of a lot of the, the concertos I played when I was um, in school, Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff is very difficult music to play, but, you know, if you if you practice it enough, there is a payoff. I mean, it does fit under the hand, and it feels very satisfying to play once you once you just take the time to learn all the notes. So I tried to do that in my own concerto. Um, so you know, it doesn't like hurt to play it or anything, but it's you know, it's it's definitely it's definitely um, a workout. Yeah.
0: But but as a, a real pianist yourself, um, you wouldn't. Um Sort of naively write something that was technically impossible. That no, was I just...
1: only do that for uh, other instruments. I, don't <laughs> I was going to say, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you know, every composer tries to learn everything we can. You know, for me, the f- great fascination has been with string stringed instruments. Um, I l- I don't play a string string instrument, so I'm always fascinated. You know, that, to 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 uh, work with them and try to learn um, how to write best for their instruments, and it's been something I've done a lot of with violin and cello and Um, but I haven't written much piano music because I've always felt my hands would, when I improvised, my hands would sort of go to pieces or certain techniques of composers who I've played in the past. And with writing for strings or, you know, marimba or, uh, clarinet, that's not the case. You know, I feel like I can, I have a sort of a fresh perspective on the instrument and how it relates to my, uh. My voice as a composer. So.
0: Oh, interesting. So, th- so your your own personal instrument, piano. Um, the tendency is to to fall back on sort of patterns that you've developed over the years. I, where...
1: Well, I don't know. I I just feel. Um, I guess I felt that it's less interesting to write for an instrument that where I know exactly. You know, uh, I think that's what it is. I know exa- I know exactly. Like if if in the hands of a of a very skilled pianist, I know how it's going to sound. You know, it's there. And I know how it's going to look, I know everything, about, I know just how it's going to go. But with a violin piece, for example, you know, I could write a, a melody that shifts up, suddenly it shifts up into the highest register, and every p- player will do that with some different sort of nuance, and I'll be surprised at some level. And it, that kind of being surprised is really exciting for a composer.
2: Mm. Now
0: one thing I, I suppose performers must grapple with every now and then if they... If they uh, are working with a new piece especially, uh, a recently composed piece, is what did the composer intend? I've got this score, but what did the composer really want it to sound like? You don't have to worry about that in performing your own piece.
1: No, I don't, but it's, it's funny because um, I have taken, I've taken this piece, and I mean, the only way I, I've determined that you can really learn a piece well, if, if it's your own piece, is to pretend that someone else wrote it. Really? You know? that, well, yeah. That why I, is that? So I've taken this like I would learn a Beethoven piano concerto, um, as if someone else composed it, and, and I'm just trying to, to learn it. And so it's funny how I've sort of felt for a while d- detached from it. You know, I almost forgot. Like, what did I exactly? <laughs> what did I exactly want here? You know, what is what really is the character? Because I've been so busy just learning the, the notes and learning them um, to really clearly, and so that they're all there, and I'm relaxed when I'm playing them, and all that. And so now I'm sort of like recently I've been thinking you know well actually what is the character i'm playing this kind of i'm i'm a little boring here like what what did i want you know um so it's interesting but I, I think you know when i was in school i would play my own pieces a lot and you assume that you know them and so you can just play them that's not the case you really have to learn them like um as if some you know that, as if they're any piece of music and um uh, that's uh, to me the only way to play them um the best that you can
0: oh that's fascinating because i think uh, you know Some performers when confronted with the score probably wish, Oh, if only I could get in the head of the composer and know exactly what she or he was thinking and here you are, the composer, and you're saying, I've gotta not pretend I'm the composer, I've gotta pretend I know nothing about this guy's mentality and just you know what, focus on the score?
1: Yeah, focus on focus (laughs) yeah, exactly. Yeah, focus on playing it. Focus on the physical motions. Of of playing it and playing it in and you know w- with certain you know panache and you know that kind of thing just like you do with any um, any piece um, and and I think the the difficult thing um, when you're playing your own music of course when you're say I'm playing you know I'm playing like Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto and uh, you know you throw yourself into it with with passion and with a sort of deep respect for the music the composer the entire experience. I, I was for a while worried. You know, I I played the piece for my wife, and I think I was I was I, I mean my own piece for my wife, and she you know I think she felt like why am I not really going for it?
0: She's a a very accomplished musician herself. Yes,
1: violinist in the New York Philharmonic. A yeah. fantastic musician, and actually I've learned a lot from she. You know, of course not long ago was was playing concertos with orchestras and um, really knows how to prepare. You know, and I haven't done it for a long time, and probably never did at the level that she did. So, just learning about, you know, talking to her about how to prepare has been great. But anyway, what there's a certain fear of arrogance, you know, like oh my, mu- this is so wonderful what I'm playing, and it's my own music, you know. But at the other, on the other hand, I've just I made a decision. I've just got to, you know, throw myself into it and play it with the same kind of energy, commitment, um, you know. Uh, as I would with anything, or I'm not playing my best. So it, it's it's a little bit of a tricky thing, I think, playing your own music. Mm. I, I sort of wonder, like how Rachmaninoff was. I've never seen those. Like I think there may be tapes, or maybe just recordings. But you know, what did he do? Was he just totally impassioned when he was playing his own music, mm-hmm. or was he just kind of a little detached? I, I don't know.
0: It, it's odd, but sometimes uh, when I've seen composers play their own music, I I actually think they don't play it as well as some some great musicians not because of sure. technical skills not because of technical skills but but a certain interpretation that i don't like as well you know?
1: yeah yeah um they may relate to it very differently or they may feel that the most obvious emotion of a certain passage they don't want to be so uh forthright about it you know they they want to approach it from a different angle because it's just it's so it's so clear and maybe almost cliche you know uh so they want to show something a little different, or, or you know, disguise it. But I, I think that is interesting. I mean, I think you know, like when I'm playing, you know, when I'm playing Mozart or something, I'm completely in in awe of it. It's like a religious experience, you know, playing it. Um, it's just a, a, a totally different thing when you're playing someone else's music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so.
0: Mm. And this is the Seventh Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm talking to the composer-pianist Kevin Putz. He'll be performing his piano concerto, Night, at this year's Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. The festival opens its 2010 season this week. And before we get back to the interview, let's listen to an example of Kevin Putz's music. We don't actually have a recording of Night to play. It's never been commercially recorded. But here's a selection from his Symphony No. 3, Vespertine, performed by the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra in 2004. The composition was inspired by the music of Bjork. back to today's interview with the composer and pianist Kevin Putz. Here he is describing the piano concerto, called Night, that he'll be performing at this year's Cabrillo Festival. It's partially based on an earlier piece he composed, A Nocturne, for clarinet, violin, and piano.
1: It begins in a, I would say, a sort of updated Baroque idiom. Um, The strings and winds are playing very Baroque sort of passage work, and the pianist is playing these sort of pointillistic um, gestures against that. And it just leads, it leads to a melody, which is really sort of a duet between two oboes, and then the piano eventually takes that melody over. And things just lead from there. They get very tumultuous and very sort of agitated, and uh, there's a kind of climactic upheaval in the middle of the movement. And then from there, things calm into the tranquility of night. That's my... The image I had when I was composing it, and so they lead directly into the opening of the second movement, which of course begins with this nocturne. Um, and uh, so I called the first movement Dies Irae, <laughs> Day of Wrath. I mean, it's not there's no religious connection or anything. It's just I just I don't know. I thought it was an interesting title, and and I, I like the idea of the the day and night, you know, um, to go from day to night, like a sort of a tempestuous day that leads to a tranquil night. Um,
0: but but no de- deliberate reference to Judgment Day, which is what DS Uri no no uh,
1: not really deliberate. I know what it is. <laughs> yeah, but it's just I but it, you know I suppose people could re- hear whatever they wanted into it. I just <laughs> wanted to call it that. Okay. Um, so um, it, the second movement again leads to the third. You know, it's very hard for me to write movements that you know aren't part of a, a, a single narrative. I mean, I've always done this. I think so. The second movement falls. Very gradually to the very, very most, you know, the, the base of the piano, the very lowest notes, and the third movement begins right there with a sort of rumbling toccata, um, um, with very, very, you know, fast notes, and and it moves gradually up the piano, but it's it's very virtuosic, like in this sort of the style of a toccata, and I call it midnight toccata. I don't know. I thought maybe at the opening of it you could hear. Um, I don't know, animals scurrying around in the forest at night or something. It's that kind of scurrying, it's def- definitely scurrying music. Hmm. Um, but uh, so so that's, and, and that movement just kind of is breathless. You know, it moves uh, very quickly um, and it doesn't really stop. It's, pre- it's relentless um, until the end.
0: I guess that's about as good as we can do without a recording, so thank you.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Uh,
0: <laughs> um, has preparing for this performance then... Um, Changed your understanding um, of this piece?
1: Um, that's interesting. Uh, I think I think so. You know, there's something to be said. You know, for just sort of moving through 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 life as a composer, you're always interested in the next piece or you know the problem. It really, composing is sort of like you're given problems to solve. Um, uh, certainly, with uh, I'm writing writing an opera at the moment and. The, that's constantly the issue, you know, how do you bring this libretto to life? And I'm completely focused on this at the moment, uh, compositionally. And I think I tend to neglect, you know, uh, pieces that I've already written. Of course, I would love to have them played. I try. I always try to, to have music that I've written in the past performed. Um, but I don't really think about them. And um, I really do. I, actually, I, I, I do think that I, I do like this piece, the, the concerto, and I think it's maybe one of my most successful pieces just from the point of view of, of it working of, of, you know, the piano being a virtuosic instrument that, that is on, is on display. Um, and, uh, the, the shape of it, I think, uh, works well. So, I mean, it's been very encouraging. Um, and I, I feel like it's worth the effort, you know, to practice this. And I've, I've, I certainly love having the opportunity to do it at Cabrillo. I mean, it's a really exciting thing. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, Reverend Debt to Marin for uh, letting me do it.
2: Mm. Well, I thought
0: I'd give listeners just an inkling of, of what some of your other compositions sound mm. like since we can't play Night, the, the piece that's going to be performed at the Cabrillo Festival this year. Um, I have a recording here uh, with permission to play just a, a tiny bit of it uh, of the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra from 2007 performing uh, your symphony number no. four. Oh, great. Tell us just a bit about this piece, your Symphony Number no. 4.
1: Well, that's that's the one piece that was uh, commissioned by Cabrillo, uh, specifically by uh, and for Howard and Carrie Hansen, who are very generous um, uh, patrons of the festival. And it was written, there were a lot of, I was talking earlier about sort of like solving problems when you're composing, you know, f- making things work, given the limits you have in the, of the issues that are set up with every composition, and this there were several um Howard and Carrie um, wanted the piece to be premiered um at the the mission San Juan Batista, where Cabrillo Festival uh, orchestra plays its last concert every summer, and they wanted it to be related to the the mission because they they love going to the concerts there they always have um. And so I started doing some research about it and about the early you know the native american indians um um who lived there they they're the the Mutsun is the name of the the tribe that um lived there before the mission uh, came into existence and actually that was sort of more interesting to me than than the the music of the missionaries themselves and so I I tr- tried a lot of difficulty to find some of this original music uh, unfortunately there their people is almost completely gone, but I found some um some tunes There was a, a missionary um there who recorded their music um, in, a, in a in a log. He wrote it down His name was Francisco Arroyo, so I found these tunes they were sent to me by the, the the library at Stanford, and I found some um some fragments of things that I could base my melodies on and I, I didn't uh, quote them because that that is a very offensive thing to to the Mutsun uh, people. Um, their music is for certain purposes. There's music for you know for working. There's music for death. There's music for uh, for everything, and it's really only to be played for those purposes. Certainly not in a concert setting. So it's loosely. So the music that you'll hear is loosely based on some of these melodic fragments that I found um, from this journal from around 1800.
0: Hmm. So so the theme that, that we heard just a moment ago, that, that's uh, an intentional echo of this Native American music? Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's funny, when I listened to it, um, not knowing the story behind it, uh, I thought, this sounds very American to me.
1: That's funny, you know, it could just be um, the context of it, the orchestral context of it, um, but that's very interesting. I think and and not surprising <laughs> when you really think about what's what's gone on in this country
0: well you know looking at yourself um do you do you feel like you have um, a, a classifiable identity as a as a composer uh, a place in the history of composition that you're comfortable with or or do you think you you defy all categories
1: Oh I don't know if I would <laughs> think of myself in the history of composition at this point I mean uh, I would like to <laughs> I mean I I guess you hope that you'll leave something that that people will get something from, you know, um, that they can use, that that means something to them. I don't think I defy all categories. I mean, I, there's certain I, I never shy away from what I really love um, musically, you know. I, and I t- try to tell my students not to either. There's sort of there are pressures, you know, to avoid certain things because they're too, oh, I don't know, simple or not sophisticated enough or that kind of thing. And I I always think that the only way you can really write music. It's powerful. Is if you try and respond to what you really love. You know who you, what you really want to say. Um, I like rich, basically tonal harmony. I like rich. I like lyricism, where the the players can really be expressive on their instruments. I'd say a sort of a full, rich. I suppose people would say it's a neo-romantic sound. Um, I, I use a lot of the time. And there's a certain, there's a minimalist uh, influence. I mean, there's certainly, you can hear echoes of um, John Adams and um, to some extent Steve Reich and I I think even Philip Glass. Um, I don't know if that comes directly from them or from my appreciation of post-minimalist music. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, there are certainly things there. Um,
0: Well, definitely lyrical is a word I'd use to describe the works of yours that I've heard. Um, Right, right. And you you seem to take uh, your your inspiration from a wide variety of sources, uh, you know everything from other music to to films.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a cinematic quality I think a lot of people hear in the music. Um, I grew up listening. You know, I mean, a lot of the first music I heard growing up in a small town, first orchestral music was was in you know film scores. So I'm sure that there's certainly an influence there. Um, though those those pieces those scores are of course influenced by works of you know, in the uh, orchestral canon. So
0: Right. There's been a good back and forth between, uh, you know, the, uh, the classical music uh, canon and, and film, certainly. And, you know, certainly a lot of great composers have written for film, yeah. from Bernstein to Copland and, right. and others. Right. Have you?
1: I haven't done it, but I'd love to. You know, it's something that um, I feel sort of with this opera I'm writing, which is certainly sort of an epic um, piece, uh, I feel I'm sort of moving in that direction, and I would certainly love to do it. I hope. I don't know if it's the kind of thing where the opportunity will present itself. I may have to, you know, search it, but for it. But I, it's an exciting thing. I mean, I I really love working on this opera um, because it's kind of like you know you're setting scenes. You know, like uh, you get in the you read in the libretto. It's morning. The soldiers are waking up. The it's there's it's, there's fog on the on the battlefront you know, that tells you a lot, and I love trying to capture that with music. And um, so film scoring would certainly be a logical next step, I think.
0: I was remembering that Prokofiev wrote for film, too. I mean, it really goes back a ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was brilliant.
0: Um, What's this opera about?
1: It is um, based on a film called Joyeux Noël, uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, It's a French film from a few years ago that deals with the... um, Impromptu, or uh, the sort of the the, the truces that happened um, on the first Christmas Eve of the First World War, there were several places along the the, the front that um, Germans, French, and Scottish just got out of their trenches and decided to stop fighting, and, and they played soccer, and they shared chocolates and champagne, and um, and you know, and of course the next day they had to go back and and shoot at each other again. So it was just it's it's. It deals with a lot of the absurdities of war and that and once once you know your enemy once there 's some kind of human intimacy, it becomes impossible war war becomes impossible and so it 's a very um a very powerful story and and you know musically it 's there are you know all these soldiers so it 's like these huge male choruses, which is really fun to get that sound and then, then there 's basically one um one female role, a soprano, who's a, it's a huge role, a very you know it's a very prominent role. She's a her character is a it's a professional soprano, a Danish professional soprano who comes to the front. Um, she gets p- papers to come to the front and see her. I think it's not her husband, maybe, but her her boyfriend who is a a professional tenor who's enlisted, and he's battle-worn, and so it's she sings for the troops, and there are all kinds of interesting scenes with her.
0: Wow who who wrote the libretto
1: Mark Campbell he's a brilliant librettist and uh it's he's made my job very easy actually
0: Wow I'm fantasizing about you bringing that to Cabrillo someday
1: <laughs> Oh well that would be wonderful <laughs> if we could get all the we can get all the singers yeah
0: <laughs> It's been done you know they did Bernstein's Mass so Yeah who uh, knows They've right. done big ambitious projects be like great. that Yeah um well we don't have of course a recording of this uh, opera in the making but we do have a recording of Another opera you wrote, uh, if opera is the right description, uh, Einstein on Mercer Street?
1: Right.
2: His floating hair, beware, beware. His floating hair, beware. His flo- floating hair, his floating, his floating hair, beware. We must circle around him thrice. He blotters, flash in my face.
0: that was uh just a, an excerpt from the first movement of einstein on mercer street this um opera um you wrote when kevin
1: uh well that's it's sort of an opera i mean it's a, it's a it's sort of a one man opera um that was written in 2002 it's a piece for baritone and chamber ensemble but okay. it really does sort of re- feel like an opera
2: mm.
0: Uh, and, and that was uh, recorded, I think, just this last year?
1: Right, by the, the wonderful baritone Timothy Jones, who, who I wrote it for in the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble, uh, directed by Kevin No.
0: And this is from some, some poems about Einstein? Yeah,
1: poems by my aunt, who is a wonderful poet. Um, Fleeta Brown is her name. Um, she was, at one point, the, the Poet Laureate of the State of Delaware. She was on the faculty of the University of Delaware She's written several books, and I've always looked up to her as an artist. Um, she's my mother's sister, older sister, and um, so we, we worked on this project together. She, she wrote I, I told her I wanted to write something based on some poems uh, you know, about some figure in history, and she talked about some writers, D. H. Lawrence and some other writers. and I, for some reason, I thought it'd be interesting if she tried something out of her element, and like Einstein. So she wrote these poems on Einstein.
0: Hmm. Uh, Mercer Street is where Einstein had his house in his later years in Princeton. Yes. Is that right? So this is uh, about Einstein in his uh, dotage? <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Yeah, part of the, the vast lore around Einstein, I guess. That's right. <laughs> um, so so I was looking back um, on, on some descriptions of you from past years in the festival, the Cabrillo Festival, I found one from, uh, I think, uh, 2003. It said, Kevin Putz, one of the most promising young composers in the United States, continues to be recognized for composing works that show a distinctive and appealing musical voice. Um, I guess you still count as a young composer. You're still under 40.
1: I suppose. You know, uh, that's sort of funny. Like, how long are you going to be emerging?
0: And making promises.
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, I I don't know. It's funny. I think I come off as a young composer no matter what. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm... Technically, I'm an adult, you know, I have a, I have a son, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm 38, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, it's funny how uh, yeah, composers have a different life span or something, I suppose. Um,
0: well, maybe we can say one of the most prominent established composers. There you the go, States. hey, that
1: sounds good. Yeah,
0: um, but you have sort of, you know, in a way, grown up as a composer, if grown up is, is not pushing it too hard. Um, with the Cabrillo Festival,
1: yeah, absolutely. It really does feel like that. I, I, I'm not sure what, how you know, you know, how far to take that, but <laughs> there's a certain <laughs> sense of surrogate parenting <laughs> I feel from Ellen Primack and you know, of course, Marin stuff and to grow up with these people. Yeah, it, it does feel. I mean, because composing, you know, you think of the first time I was there, maybe eight years ago. Eight, you know, like eight years is a long time of you know, in development when you're when you're when that's in your twenties and thirties, you know. So, um, yeah, it does feel like that, and uh, I just love—I just love it. I mean, it's just the most incredible place, incredible orchestra and conductor. I feel very lucky to have that, that, Marin. You know, heard something in my music and started inviting me there.
0: Well, well, great. We'll look forward to seeing you here on August fourteenth.
1: Uh, I look forward to it.
0: Composer Kevin Putz—he'll be performing his piano concerto entitled "Night." on Saturday, August 14th at the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium. It's part of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, which you can learn more about by going to cabrillomusic.org, that's cabrillomusic.org, or calling the Santa Cruz Civic Box Office at 831-420-5260. That's 831-420-5260. And by the way, KUSP kicks off its exclusive broadcasts of the Cabrillo Festival with a live broadcast of the opening night performance. That's this coming Friday, August 6th. The broadcast starts at 7 p.m., the concert starts at 8, and I'll be hosting, joined by KUSP's Jane Gilvin. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. Next, we'll hear from another of this year's Cabrillo Festival headliners, the percussion virtuoso Colin Curry. Still in his early 30s, he's one of the reigning stars of classical percussion. Last year, he shared in a Grammy Award for his rendition of Jennifer Higdon's Percussion Concerto, performed at the London Philharmonic Orchestra and conducted by Marin Alsop. He'll be performing that same spectacular concerto again under the baton of Marin Alsop at this year's Cabrillo Festival. And in this segment of our show, we're going to hear Colin describing the percussion concerto as we listen to the London Philharmonic recording. And apologies for the bad phone connection here. Colin spoke to me from London, and this was the best we could do, I'm afraid.
3: The concerto has a very beautiful beginning. Um, I spoke with Jennifer about which instruments she might like to use for the concerto, and immediately I mentioned my great love of uh, the instrument called the marimba, and especially the five-octave marimba, which extends down to a fantastic bass register. And so she decided that, as well as having moments of great drama and dynamic in her piece, she would actually start the concerto very atmospherically um, at a low dynamic and on the bass end of the marimba, where you get these rumbling frequencies that sound very interesting, very strange, uh, and quite unexpected.
0: You say marimba is your favorite instrument?
3: Well, I have a great love of that instrument, yes. I mean, I would hate to pick out just one instrument, um, but uh, it is an instrument that I enjoy playing, and it has a lot of versatility. And um, that's definitely demonstrated in this concerto as well.
0: A few minutes into the piece, after this, this very quiet and moody opening, um, the orchestra jumps in, all of a sudden. So when the orchestra comes in uh, with these big fanfares uh, and this, this very dramatic entrance, um, you switch to vibes.
2: That's right.
0: Well, you're switching from one instrument to another. I mean, when, when composers write a uh, concerto for you, It often calls on you to to go from marimba to vibraphone to xylophone to drums to miscellaneous percussion. Do composers have an idea of what's required on a physical level for you to get from one place to another and for you to play these instruments? I'm surmising here that most composers don't have a background in percussion.
3: Well, exactly. I mean, um, there are a variety of uh, results in the pieces that have been written for me. And some are very practically-minded, like the Higdon. There are challenges there, and I have to move quickly, but it's all doable. But other times, the score turns up, and there's this crazy stuff happening, and people forget how long it takes to move, to actually walk around, or even run around uh, a set of guns to get to the or whatever it is. And also, how long it takes to change sticks. So... Um, that is very definitely a concern but Jennifer's piece is is quite nicely organized and there's just enough uh, time to get around (laughs) things.
0: do you ever come back to a composer though and say, this can't be done
3: (laughs) yeah, absolutely, yeah I do Um, I mean I really try and push the the boundaries but some things that just really can't be done they're not going to work and even to try and do so it's just going to be embarrassing so um, that's not
2: fun for anyone. Uh-huh. So
3: you have to be realistic. And this piece is realistic. It has a realistic challenge um, and a realistic practical side to it, good
0: balance. There's just uh, such a wide range of, of feelings, of, um, of aesthetics here. I'm thinking, for instance, of when you go from these pitched instruments uh, like the marimba and vibraphone, those that play actual notes to the non-pitched instruments, um, like wood blocks.
3: Yeah, sure.
0: I think you're joined maybe by other members of the percussion section.
3: Yeah, well, um, I think that's a really fantastic thing about this concerto is that it does allow me to collaborate with other percussionists. And, of course, as I collaborate with different orchestras in the world, it's always very interesting to... See the, um, how, how they are and how, how they vary.
0: I also felt that it had a sort of clockwork quality about it, a mechanical quality. It sounds like extreme precise Swiss timing there.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, the whole piece is, is, is regulated by a very regular time signature, um, which is 4-4. Uh, four, four. So it's a very four-square piece. Somehow the number 4 is very important to this piece, and that gives it its kind of tick-tocking quality. And um, I think that's um, absolutely uh, key to this piece and, and what gives it its sound and what gives it its feel.
0: Now, after some of these very concentrated, active sections of the piece, there are also these quiet um, passages. There's a long section of the middle. The word that came to mind when I listened to it was searching or questioning, maybe?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very atmospheric piece in that sense. And uh, I think um, something really special has been achieved um, by the composer in, in that case, yeah.
0: Colin, tell us what you're doing in that middle section.
3: Well, I I play um, a lot of vibraphone, but as well as playing it with normal mallets, I also play it with uh, a bass bow. So that's a makes for a very interesting sound and a very sustained sound. So uh, that's also another thing to enjoy. Um, and it's quite, quite different. If you haven't heard that before, it'll be a very interesting sound for everyone to hear. ¶¶
0: You're uh, bowing these metal bars on the vibraphone.
3: That's exactly right. Yeah. No, it's um, and it's a very interesting effect. Um, and also, this, in conjunction with the percussionists in the orchestra, um, that's all. They're also bowing vibraphones as well. So um, you get these chords coming, and they sound really. I don't know what. Like, it uh, they, they always makes me think of a rainbow for some reason.
2: Ah. <laughs> it's,
3: it's really a really beautiful specter of sound, somehow.
0: Is, is that a technique um, that's difficult to learn for, for percussionists, bowing?
3: Well, it depends, really. I mean, it, um, I as well as bowing, I'm also striking it in the normal way, so I'm, I'm having to um, juggle a variety of things, really. So uh, that's quite interesting. So I think um, it has to be done well, though, and um, you can do it so that you make a good blend, especially with your colleagues who are also playing with you. So. Um,
0: you, you, you have to think of balance and touch as well. You know, I've, I've seen Evelyn Glennie bowing um, various metal percussion instruments as well. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and you're Scottish also, aren't you? That's right, yeah. Is it, is it mere coincidence that two of the world's great percussionists uh, come from Scotland?
3: Well, I think um, we both came from a similar background in music, and we both uh, benefited from support from a number of people uh, in common, like the National Youth Orchestra of Scotland, for example. So, I just think it's testament to the good education system in, in our country.
0: This was written for you, or with you in mind, by Jennifer Higdon in in 2005? That's right. What's it like to have a piece uh, like this written for you?
3: (laughs) Well, it's very exciting for me to be involved with a a variety of composers. And, of course, I I developed a very strong relationship with Jennifer. We became very good friends, and we have a lot of luck when we get together and we're very fond of each other, and I think you can sort of feel that in the music, the way she's written for me, and I hope also in the way that I reciprocate the way I play the piece. Um, I I sort of have Jennifer in mind when I play the piece as well, so I'm replaying it for her, and I think it reflects um, her personality. Um, The music reflects her personality as does the way I perform the piece. This concerto is absolutely fantastic um, to play. It's very interesting and I get to play a lot of different instruments uh, in a lot of different ways. I find the orchestration is very, very interesting. It's, the orchestration is really constantly on the move, always changing. And there's a lot of variety there and so the colours are always changing, coming in and out of focus like a kaleidoscope. So there's a lot um, a lot of ear candy in this concerto and it's it's a very... Very satisfying listen for anyone who has not heard the piece before. First time round, it's going to sound absolutely wonderful and, and like a, a very beautiful uh, adventure.
0: About maybe three quarters of the way through the piece um, there's this section again with wood blocks and I think um, some gongs and and other percussion Um, let's listen to that and I I hope you don't take this, this wrong but as I listened to it I thought it's like listening to a flock of extremely talented woodpeckers
3: absolutely yeah I think Jennifer itself calls it the Woody Woodpecker section. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those pieces where it's quite all right to have a bit of a laugh with what's happening. It's, it's uh, definitely a fun moment.
0: Then we come to the uh, th- this bongo section. You're, sure. you're, you're playing bongos with sticks, and I guess you've got some kind of pedal drum as well uh, for bass.
3: Yeah, that's right, yeah. I have um, a cadenda to play, and I, I really make these interesting bongo patterns um, based on rhythms that Jennifer wrote herself. It's, it's, it should sound like her music, but it's actually kind of my way of working... Uh, out an interesting solo from patterns that she's already created. Uh, and I play it around something like, it's a bit like a drum kit, really. Um, but uh, it's a drum kit which I play, I play it standing up, so it's, it's, it's kind of cool.
0: It begins to sound to me like a, a, a really uh, rocking um, jazz drum solo.
3: It gets a little bit freer there, and as I mentioned, the whole piece is arranged in the time signature of four-four. So but I thought it would be interesting in the cadenza to start using some more, um, what we call, mixed-meter um, time signatures, So instead of, instead of being in 4, which is quite something we're very used to, uh, not just in this piece but in other pieces, um, I actually change it and I do something that's in 7, and it makes it uh, sound, all of a sudden, quite um, exciting just because of that, that time signature change which is the only time that happens in the piece
0: um, listening to, to you rock the house during this cadenza I'm thinking that you, you did do some rock and roll drumming in your day yeah
3: that's right I recently played for Todd Rundgren um, uh, in Holland and um, that was great that gave me a chance to um, play some rock and roll drums properly and i um, that was great fun and and that let me that let the rock rocker inside me come out to for the forefront
0: This piece has become a standard part of your repertoire, yes? Yes. What's it like to have a piece like this that you play again and again over the years?
3: Um, this, it's been a real joy, this piece. Um, it's done fantastically well. I've played it about 50 times already. And um, it, it's a piece that I really enjoy playing, and it's something the audience will always absolutely devour. So um, this piece has just been a, an absolute joy.
0: Does it feel like a big part of your life? Does it feel like, um, I'm I'm groping here for for a way to to describe how close a musician like you must feel to a piece like this, but um, what's your relationship to it?
3: Well, it's a very, very close thing. Um, uh, It's very intimate, and it it is linked with a time that my my solo career was was really really taking hold at at a very high level. So I always associate it with the, those premieres, which involved my debut with the Philadelphia Orchestra and my first performance at Carnegie Hall. I think those were key moments for me in my career and, and really signaled some kind of arrival. So it was a, a real pivotal um, concerto for me. It's very Jennifer. Um, it's very um, triumphant and beautiful and strong and adventurous. And it has a key um, sense of, of spirit and enthusiasm for life. And I think anyone who relishes those kinds of feelings will absolutely love this concerto. It's a very affirming piece, a very beautiful piece, very striking and incredibly strong and passionate.
0: Colin Curry, describing Jennifer Higdon's Percussion Concerto, which he'll be performing next Saturday, August 7th, at the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium. It's part of this year's Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, launching its 2010 season this week. More information can be had at cabrillomusic.org, that's cabrillomusic.org, or calling the Santa Cruz Civic box office at 831-420-5260. That's 831-420-5260. And by the way, the festival's opening night concert takes place this Friday, August 6th, and we here at KOSP will broadcast the event live. I'll be sitting in as host. So tune in Friday starting at 7 p.m. The concert starts at 8. And in the meantime, here's a tip for all of you. Open rehearsals for the festival are being held over the next two weeks at the Santa Cruz Civic. They're free and open to the public and offer a really cool chance to see a world-class orchestra at work. Again, you can learn more at CabrilloMusic.org or at the Santa Cruz Civic Box Office. This has been the Seventh Avenue Project. You can visit us on the web at SeventhAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, signing off until next week.